0: When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow, wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com.
2: The FT New pension rules confirmed, with all the details on the rules that will apply from April next year. Brits are busy buying holiday homes again, but we question whether they've learned the lessons of the downturn and how to make money by investing in the clever stuff that comes out of university research. Welcome to The Money Show, one of the FT's most popular podcasts. I'm Jonathan Ely and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleagues, Joe Cumbo, Hello. And Adam Palin. Hello. Plus studio guest, John Busby of French Private Finance. Hello. Earlier this week, the Treasury revealed more details of the sweeping reforms to the pension system outlined in the March budget. These give people in defined contribution schemes approaching retirement more choices with regard to how they take their pension benefits. Specifically, from April 2015, it will be possible to withdraw the entire contents of an accumulated pension fund as cash without incurring a punitive tax charge. Critics of the reforms say that retirees will underestimate their longevity and blow all the money early on in retirement, leaving them dependent on the state in later years. Or they worry that the financial services industry will design and sell lousy products aimed at persuading people to part with their life savings, including people currently in final salary schemes who might be tempted to switch into less secure schemes simply to get at their cash. Others say that wealthier savers will simply game the system by taking cash out of one pension and putting it straight into another, thus getting tax relief a second time around. The Treasury has attempted to address these concerns with a number of proposals. Joe Cumbo, who reported all of these before the Treasury's actual announcement, has more detail. Joe, let's look at pension recycling first. This is where cash is taken out of one scheme and put straight into another. What's to stop people doing that?
3: There are rules in place at the moment to stop tax-free cash recycling, but the concern is that after April 2016, when people will have full opportunity to take cash as a lump sum from their pension, that this could become a broader problem. So what they've done is that from April 2016, if you access your pension, cash, a defined contribution scheme. If you take it flexibly, that your annual allowance, which is currently forty thousand pounds a year, will fall to ten thousand pounds per year. So they're restricting the opportunities for further tax relief.
2: And what about final salary schemes where your pension in retirement is based on the number of years service and your salary at the time you leave? Surely you'd be mad to take money out of a scheme that pays a known level of income and just to get at the cash?
3: When the uh, reforms were announced in March this year, the government said that it was considering banning transfers out of final salary schemes into defined contribution schemes where people could access their cash flexibly. So there needed to be a a path out and they were considering blocking that. But what was announced this week was that those transfers will be allowed to continue. Um, And you were right to say that, yes, final salary pensions are, are very rare these days. And they come with benefits that people don't get anymore, including index linking, and you'd be pretty mad to give one up. But there are certain situations which might suit people to transfer out. And that includes if you're very ill or you don't have dependents where it might uh, be more beneficial for you to take that income, the final salary income as cash. So there will still be an opportunity for you to do that after April 2016.
2: Will you just be able to do it just like that or will there no, be some hoops No, to no, no, there through? have
3: been new controls introduced uh, by the government to make sure that people stop and think a little bit more about what they're doing so there will be a new requirement for people with benefits of 30,000 pounds or more to get professional advice on that transfer. It is quite a complicated consideration.
2: Okay, and finally there's this question of guidance. It was originally promised that we were going to get advice. It's now clear that that's guidance, which is slightly different and it's hoped I guess by the government that this will prevent retirees making rash decisions perhaps going and spending all their money on a cruise or a sports car and then running out later in retirement. How is guidance going to work and who's going to pay for it?
3: Yes it was talked up and it's been talked up for many months now that um, this is going to help people empower them to make informed decisions about their complex new choices that they face but the reality is is that it's going to be fairly basic. We don't even know for sure what's going to be said in these conversations, but it will probably be about 30 minutes or so. And you won't end up with a recommendation at the end of it about any products you should buy. And it won't be based on you know full rundown of your own personal circumstances. So it will be fairly rudimentary. And it's not advice, as you said, it's guidance. So, For people who have quite complicated financial arrangements, guidance isn't going to tell you where to go. It will help you set out your options, but it's only considered to be the first step in the journey.
2: And just finally, ever since the budget, arguments and debates have raged about uh, who is best placed to provide this guidance. Some in the pensions and insurance industry have said actually we should because we're closest to the customers, other people in the same industry have said actually it should be at arm's length and we should stay well away from it. Who is going to actually deliver it?
3: Well, the government came down firmly in the camp of independent providers. Uh, They said that services that do offer guidance need to be completely separated and divorced from the sales process and have no interest in selling you anything. So what the um, partners who will be leading the advice, the guidance delivery will be organisations such as the Pensions Advisory Service and the Money Advice Service, who already offer free services to individuals on debts and pensions. But there's probably going to be a whole range of retirement guides identified meeting those basic criteria of being independent and impartial. You should be signposted. There will be a new legal duty on your pension provider to signpost you to guidance services from April 2016. Thanks very
2: much, Joe. There's a lot of detail to take in this week, so you'll be pleased to hear that, as ever, FT Money is here to make sense of it all. Look out for Joe's Q&A this weekend, and we've also more on the state pension system ahead of the introduction of the flat rate pension in 2016. Still to come on the show, making money from university's intellectual property. But first, if it's summer, it must be holiday time. And if mortgage brokers and estate agents are right, thousands of Brits will be flying out to Spain or driving out to France, looking to pick up a second home, as well as a tan and some duty-free. Overseas property is back. My email inbox is overflowing with exhortations to consider Spain, Bulgaria, Turkey or even Albania for a second home. This renewed interest comes as we are still dealing with the hangover of the last boom, when many Brits allowed themselves to be talked, often under intense sales pressure, into buying overpriced, unfinished or illegally constructed property. Values and transaction levels in many places, especially Spain, collapsed, leaving investors with unrentable and unsellable property and increasingly expensive mortgages. Have we learned our lessons, or are we set to make the same mistakes all over again? Joining me to help explain is John Busby, who is Managing Director of French Private Finance. That's a firm that helps arrange mortgages for second home purchases in France. John, welcome to the show. Firstly, what sorts of people are buying property in France or indeed Spain? And are
1: they doing it for personal use or is it uh, for investment? I think it's a mixture. It's often quite difficult to separate the two. I think the type of buyer that we saw pre-crisis was very much the full range of the market. There were many buyers at the the low price, middle price and upper range. There was really really a full spread of buyers. These days, I would say the type of buyers that we're seeing, particularly in France, are well-to-do professionals who've, who've weathered the crisis and seen an increase in confidence. Those buyers really have, you know, they've been looking at France for years. They've been traveling to France for years. France is the most visited country in the world. Now that they have the confidence to buy again, they're looking at buying places. And although there is an investment element, France is actually quite tax efficient for for overseas buyers of French property.
2: Why has interest perked up all of a sudden? Is it because of the way the property market is recovering here or is it to do with things that are happening in other countries such as France and Spain?
1: I think one of the main drivers for the interest is obviously the love affair that the Brits have with French property, but also there are prevailing other factors such as the ultra low interest rates, which you can find both in Spain and in France. The European interest rates are at their lowest point. The the long term indicators are also at their lowest point. So for example, in France, you can get a fixed rate mortgage over 20 years at 3.25%, which compares very well with anything you can get in the UK. Also, sterling has appreciated by about 10%. Sterling's only two cents off its pre crisis levels, I think, of about 128. And, of course, property prices have been soft. In Spain, there have been huge discounts to be had. Likewise, in certain areas of France, this mixture of the low interest rates, appreciating sterling, and, uh, and the soft property prices have, have made for a, a good buying picture for, for British residents.
2: Now, I don't want to sort of overegg the the dangers of uh, overseas property, but I do know that many people had bad experiences uh, in the boom years. What were the mistakes commonly made back then? And are people making mistakes again?
1: Obviously, with, the, with all of the bad stories that have, that have come out in, in certain markets, I think the British will be a lot more careful, a lot more sensible about about buying overseas now. I think the, the slight lack of availability in credit in the UK with people being able to get loans against their own houses with the, the FCA changes, with the mortgage market review, mean that there won't be as much liquidity coming through. The availability of finance is quite good in France and in Spain. So I think that the market is there. in terms of the mistakes which they've made, I think that, yes, in in Spain, I think the the property prices are at a good level. So I don't think people will will see a crash there again. I think they'll be able to buy there. And potentially in France, the, the only bad luck stories I've heard really about people buying badly located property. And I think that's the old adage of location, location, location is extremely important.
2: Now, I'm going to France on holiday in a couple of weeks' time. If I should find myself gazing wistfully into an estate agent's window, what should I bear in mind?
1: Well, you know, you might wonder if you'd be able to to get a mortgage in France and I think the the answer would probably be yes when we when we did a recent comparison between the affordability in the UK and the affordability in France uh, in terms of how difficult or how easy it is to get a mortgage, we found that in fact France probably comes up as being uh, quite a good or easy place to obtain a loan, so you would be able to to probably find a mortgage for for the property you're looking at. In terms of other costs to be aware of on a new build property, uh, you know, in terms of the estate agents Uh, fees hopefully those are included in the price and if they are you're probably looking at around four percent for stamp duty and mortgage registration tax for a new build and then for an existing property it would be more like eight percent so there are those additional costs which are slightly higher than than in the uk okay thank you very much that was john busby of french private
2: finance ft money is part of the weekend ft which is on sale on both saturday and sunday and you can read online at any time just go to ft.com forward slash money The Weekend FT is also available on mobile devices via a free web app in both Apple and Android versions. And we're always keen to hear your views. You can leave comments on articles on our website, or you can email us directly. The address is money at ft.com. On to our final item for today. Have you ever wanted to make a fortune out of a new invention? Imagine being one of the first people to invest in Facebook, or a significant new drug, or an exciting new material like graphene. But commercialising intellectual property is not easy and it can be very risky. There are several shares on the junior London stock market dedicated to graphene, for instance, but none of them makes a profit and dividends are years away. Their shares are very volatile. But get it right and the rewards can be enormous. A company like Arm Holdings, a world leader in chip design, grew out of university research and it's now a member of the FTSE 100 Index. So what's the best way to do it? Adam Palin has been investigating. Adam, there are some companies that specialise in commercialising university uh, intellectual property. They do some of the risk management for you, and they have links with some of the leading universities. Who are they, and how do they operate? Yes, well, Jonathan, I think there's been a a bit of a recognition
0: over the past decade, maybe more, among universities that perhaps their strong point isn't necessarily in developing their often world-beating research into well-beating products. So a number of companies, led by two in particular, the first, IP Group, and the second, Imperial Innovations, which is itself a spin-out from Imperial College London, have partnered with a number of universities to take forward their research, getting in at a very early stage and putting in place management teams, business plans, and investing in partnership with the universities to take products forward, so Imperial, for example, they work with Oxford, Cambridge, and UCL, as well as Imperial. And IP Group, they partner with, I believe it's now 15 universities. They include Manchester, Leeds, a number of Russell Group institutions. They're both listed on the stock exchange. Now, recently added to those two is Allied Mines. Allied Mines partners with a number of uh, US university and also with the US government. And it's the same principle. They invest at an early stage in companies a little bit ruthless in which ones they select to take forward. And you can invest indirectly in those startup companies uh, through shares in these IP commercialization specialists.
2: Now, that entails buying shares on the stock market and paying a stockbroker to transact for you, um, which may not be everybody's cup of tea. Is it possible to do this just by investing in conventional funds? There are no mainstream funds that invest
0: exclusively in these kind of startups. There are, however, a few funds that have pretty decent exposure to these kind of companies. Probably the best known among these are funds associated with Neil Woodford. Now, the uh, Invesco UK Smaller Companies Fund, which was formerly run by Neil Wood, that has uh, a number of investments in small companies and indeed in the IP commercialisation specialists. Now, Woodford, who has set up his own fund, that has significant stakes, certainly relative to its own portfolio in these IP commercialisation specialists, and indeed in small companies. Just to give you an example, Jonathan, the Woodford Equity Income Fund has made a number of investments in companies such as Revolima, which is a maker of non-stick chewing gum, and also a respiratory drug maker called Retroscreen Virology, which was spun out of Queen Mary, University of London, a few years ago now.
2: And if you are comfortable with buying shares and you're happy to take those risks, which shares offer direct exposure to sort of exciting new innovations and inventions from universities?
0: This year there's been quite a few companies that have listed on the AIM market. One that listed earlier this year that gained quite a lot of press is Circassia. an anti-allergy drug maker spun out of Imperial, big investment by Imperial Innovations and it promises to offer people who suffer from cat allergy immunity from that. There's another Xeros, which was a University of Leeds spin-out. That is the company behind a near-waterless washing machine. It uses these polymer beads. However, I think the perils of investing in individual stocks, or certainly having a a lot of money in them from the get-go, is illustrated by Xeros, which, um, although it's recovered recently, lost about 30% of its value in the first two months after listing.
2: And finally, technology development lends itself uh, very much to enterprise investment schemes, which offer access to very small startup companies with substantial tax relief. Can you just remind us how those work? There are a few dedicated funds that you can invest
0: in, all of which they, they qualify for the government-approved enterprise investment schemes. Now, this offers investors significant tax breaks on account of the risk of investing in in these startups. One of them was launched this year as run by Parkwalk. They also partner with the University of Cambridge, but they fund, the ISIS fund that was set up with the University of Oxford this year, you can invest in a portfolio of young companies that have come out of University of Oxford research, and they will take a very long-term view in their investment strategy. Unlike venture capital trusts, enterprise investment schemes don't pay a dividend, but they do seek to deliver long-term gains over the the sale of shares in in companies that hopefully become successful. Now, in terms of the tax reliefs, you get 30% income tax relief up front. You can defer capital gains tax liabilities you might have, and you also don't pay capital gains tax on any money that you make in them. However, I should stress, this does reflect the risk of your investments, and your money's going to be tied up for a long time, often five years, maybe more, and there's going to be a minimum buy-in.
2: Thanks very much, Adam. We've lots more on investing in intellectual property in this weekend's FT Money, and you can get lots more data on some of the companies we've talked about using FT.com's markets data section. Elsewhere in this week's paper, John Lee, Britain's first ISA millionaire, outlines why he likes to invest in companies based outside London and the city, while we've more on why stamp duty receipts are rocketing. The Money Show will be back next week. But for now, it's goodbye from me, Joe, Adam, and our special guest, John Busby of French Private Finance. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.
1: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.